Welcome to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lupman, and as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social, and economic movement shaping the world around us. Today on the show, we're talking about the observation of the 21st anniversary of the signing of the 2001 authorization to use military force and the lasting impact it has had around the world. We're talking about the struggles of Puerto Rico as it faces another daunting challenge in the wake of Hurricane Fiona and how U.S. Open workers have won back stolen wages in New York City. And later in the show, starting at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Time, we'll be opening the phone lines to you. But before we can move on, in an interview Sunday on CBS News, Joe Biden made the inexplicable comment that we're still doing a lot of work on it, but the pandemic is over. He went on to say that we still have a problem with COVID. We're still doing a lot of work on it. Which which is it, Biden? The pandemic is over or the virus is still a problem? See, Biden made these comments at Detroit's annual auto show where plenty of silly people were happily milling about in an enclosed space without masks on. Biden used those people as an example of the pandemic being over, saying of them, like literally pointing at them and saying, everybody seems to be in pretty good shape. And so I think it's changing. And I think this is a perfect example of it. Well, what about the 400 people a day who are still dying from COVID? Are they in pretty good shape? That's the data from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. And I know people are still very much on their, well, these people died from other things. They had comorbidities. They died from something else bandwagon. But the fact is that even if that is true, those people probably would not have died if they had not contracted COVID. Data from Johns Hopkins University on September 17th found that the U.S. has some of the highest COVID-19 figures globally in terms of cases and deaths. Still, next to the U.S. is Japan with 1,139 deaths recorded over the previous week. And this is true as states across the U.S. are rolling back pandemic-related restrictions like lifting mask mandates. In May, the president told Americans to not grow numb as the country's death toll rose to one million people from COVID. It sounds to me like he surely has. Even as people continue to spread the virus, people continue to contract and die from the virus, and the government continues to do nothing but stick its head in the sand. Still no widely distributed PPE. Vaccines are no longer free. Boosters are no longer free. But while people still die from COVID-19, comorbidities or not, Biden declares the pandemic over. Well, I guess it is over for the people who are dying from COVID. In more bombastic Biden news, President Biden has again confirmed that U.S. troops would deploy to defend Taiwan in the event of a so-called attack from China, indicating how committed the Biden administration is to starting World War III. In an interview with 60 Minutes, Biden told host Scott Pelley that the United States would defend Taiwan, quote, if in fact there was an unprecedented attack from China. 
Pelley asked Biden to clarify his stance on using U.S. forces against foreign adversaries and, of course, raised Ukraine as a counter, pointing out that, unlike Ukraine, to be clear, sir, U.S. forces, U.S. men and women, would defend Taiwan in the event of a Chinese invasion, Pelley asked. Yes, Biden replied. Of course, Pelley didn't note that the U.S., EU, and NATO are using Ukrainians to fight the Russians for them because this was 60 Minutes here. Certainly not a a scion of anti-imperialist journalism, for sure. But the fact that Biden is clear-eyed on sending Americans to fight China in the event of a fictitious invasion or attack on Taiwan is really following the same playbook that Biden used to cook up the conflict in Ukraine. He's talking up an attack that no one in China is actually planning because Taiwan is part of China, regardless of what the U.S. says. So China invading Taiwan would be like the U.S. Army invading Washington, D.C. And he's doing this while the U.S. is actively engaged in direct provocation against China with so-called diplomatic visits to Taiwan and pro-Taiwan legislation. This is just like Biden talked up a Russian invasion that Putin actually was not planning, all while NATO troops mobilized and carried out massive military exercises and staged weapons in the countries bordering Russia, pointing directly at them for months, if not years. Biden is talking the U.S. into yet another war. But this time, he's making it clear that he isn't going to use Taiwanese troops to fight China. He'll use the U.S. military. 21 years after George Bush authorized the Authorization for Use of Military Force, or the AUMF, in 2001 that put U.S. troops in Afghanistan and led to not just 20 years of war in that country, but to unending and ever escalating U.S. militarism still being carried out around the world, Barbara Lee, the only U.S. representative to vote against the AUMF in 2001, well, she's been proven right. The U.S. government does have a blank check to wage war without debate. And Joseph Biden? is making sure to cash in on his portion of it. And those are today's talking points, and you are listening to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukeman, and as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. By Any Means Necessary. And let's keep the movement moving on. As they say, I'm happy to be joined by Dan Kovalik, an adjunct professor of international human rights at the University of Pittsburgh School of Law, author of No More War, How the West Violates International Law by Using Humanitarian Intervention to Advance Economic and Strategic Interests. Dan, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. Really glad you could join today to talk about uh, this weekend's commemoration. It's not certainly not something to celebrate, but it's something we observe that it was 21 years ago this weekend that President George W. Bush signed into law the 2001 Authorization for Use of Military Force, or the AUMF, which sent the United States to war in Afghanistan. And of course, that is the quagmire that the Biden administration just barely uh, got the 
U.S. government out of in September 2021, technically at least. But I think it's important to look at the legacy, the impact, the lasting impact of the AUMF uh, on the U.S. government and the way it does business uh, in regard to foreign policy, because we're seeing uh, the continued warmongering, certainly in the proxy war in Ukraine against Russia, but we're also seeing the drumbeats of war that the Biden administration is uh, banging against China. So, you know, what do you think is the, the greatest lasting impact of the AUMF? Well, I think that it really did pave the way, not only for the invasion of uh, Afghanistan, but then also for the invasion of Iraq shortly after, and a number of different interventions uh, in various countries, particularly in the Middle East. And I think it wore down the, for starters, the American peace movement, which did initially at least try to protest the uh, invasion of Iraq before it happened. And it had some of the biggest protests, uh, peace protests in history. Um, but then once the war started, those protests pretty much evaporated. And we haven't seen the return of, of those protests. And I think basically this so-called war on terror, which Bush claimed he was beginning, um, really inured the American people to war in a way they never have been in our history. And of course, the irony is that while it was claimed to be a war on terror, uh, Bush went after countries and leaders that actually were fighting Mm al-Qaeda, like Saddam Hussein in Iraq. He became more, of course, threatening towards Iran, which also was a mortal and is a mortal enemy of groups like Al Qaeda. And of course, this led ultimately as well to Obama's war against Libya and Gaddafi again, who were enemies of of uh, these extremist groups. And of course, Obama ends up partnering with jihadists in Libya to overthrow Gaddafi. So it ended up being a big lie that I think ultimately the American people at first resisted and questioned, but then ultimately they ended up swallowing that lie. And that's that's the question that has always kind of uh, mystified me, you know, because more than two decades of U.S. military engagement, the devastation has been, I, I mean, it's unconscionable. The consequences in the countries that the U.S. has intervened military, uh, militarily in have been absolutely ghastly. More than 363,000 civilians have died as a direct result of violence in the post-9-11 military operations. Millions more suffered infrastructure uh, destruction. Millions died due to side effects of the war, uh, you know, destruction of hospitals, roads, schools, just just unconscionable devastation. So how did particularly the the anti-war movement, because uh, I, I remember being involved in those protests uh, and there was so much energy, I have never been able to figure out 
Where did the energy go? How did the U.S. government sap the energy of, of opposition to war from what was once a very vibrant anti-war movement that, that produced a lot of, you know, acquiescence, if not, well, you know, a lot of, uh, uh, um, you know, people just saying, well, this is just the way things are, if not outright acquiescence, Dan? Yeah, I think a few things happened. I think that for one, I think the peace movement was demoralized because they did have these historically big protests, not only in the U.S., but in Britain and other countries, uh, and they couldn't stop the war from happening. And I think there was a demoralization that occurred because of that. I think also, you know, once there's so-called boots on the ground, uh, people feel kind of cowed into supporting our troops, and so that was part of it. Uh, but as the years went on, I think what also happened is that the, the base of people who are more naturally or have been historically more naturally against war, which are the liberal, you know, sector of society, pro-democratic, big D democratic uh, part of society, um, while they were willing to oppose Bush's wars, at least to an extent, uh, once Obama comes in, he is able to convince liberals, again, who, who historically have been against war, to actually embrace war as some sort of humanitarian venture. And that, that of course, is the subject of the book you mentioned at, at the outset. I mean, I think Clinton did that to some extent, but I think Obama elevated it into an art form where people – believe, for example, that the NATO intervention in Libya was somehow a human rights venture. Even even democracy now, for example, uh, seemed to buy into that. A lot of leftists and liberals bought into that. They bought into it in Syria as well. Um, and so over time, and then you had Russiagate, of course, which also appealed to liberals um, and really uh, provoked this anti-Russian hatred, which we see, you know, blossoming now, where, again, you see liberals more bellicose towards Russia than even conservatives. So, you know, you had the ruling class represented by both the Republican and Democratic Party able to essentially manufacture consent for war. And that's where we're at at the moment, where Again, people who historically opposed war now seem to be cheerleading it. Mm. You know, I, I had often wondered at what point did did democracy now start uh, uh, towing the line for imperialism? And you just answered my question for me right around the so-called humanitarian intervention in Libya. That makes all the sense in the world. So, you know, the AUMF uh, was authorized allegedly in response to, you know, the quote unquote war on terror. Um, but from from the looks of things, uh, the war on terror has been an abject failure. What has been the impact of uh, U.S. intervention in uh, countries and around the world, uh, countries around the world, in pursuing or carrying a, carrying out this AUMF uh, under the guise of uh, fighting this war on terror? That it does not look to me like anybody has actually won, except for people who like to continue to sow terrorism? Yes. Well, I mean, the reason for that, of course, is that ultimately the U.S. 
while it began ostensibly as a war on terror, meaning a war uh, at that time on al-Qaeda, it morphed into actually a war of terror where the U.S. began partnering with groups like al-Qaeda and then ISIS to pursue its foreign policy aims. And, you know, for example, Seymour Hersh, the great journalist, Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist, wrote an article in The New Yorker, I think it was around 2007, if I'm not mistaken, called The Redirection, in which he, he catalogs how the Bush administration went from opposing al-Qaeda to supporting al-Qaeda-type groups in places like Syria in order to undermine secular regimes that the U.S. opposed. And so in the end, it was a failure in terms of fighting terror, but that's because ultimately it became a war that was supporting terrorism. And very few people understand this in the U.S. Of course, that was always kept secret from the American people, though you have a few people out there like Tulsi Gabbard and even Trump when he was running for office who started making noises about this, you know, how we were supporting ISIS and whatnot. And, of course, they're they're treated as insane people, uh, but they had obviously a point to that. And even had people like Biden at times when he was vice president admitting um, that the U.S. was aiding groups uh, like ISIS. But again, a lot of that's been kind of swept under the rug. And um, so, again, to put a finer point on it, you know, the, the war on terror was lost because ultimately the U.S. decided to support terrorism. Absolutely. In six countries, actually, where the U.S. troops were deployed for combat, terror attacks actually rose more than 1,900 percent. And this is because the equipment and training that the U.S. government provided to uh, partner states like Burkina Faso to counter terrorism instead have been used to repress and massacre minority groups and political opposition in those countries. So, Dan, when U.S. President Joe Biden tells the United Nations in September 2021 that I stand here today for the first time in 20 years with the United States not at war. We've turned a page. That's actually really not true. The United States is not really not at war. I mean, how deeply entrenched is the United States still in military activities, even though there is no active declaration of war like the AUMF uh, that President Biden or, you know, Trump before him uh, has passed? Yeah, well, first of all, the U.S. is at war all the time, and, and most of the wars are not declared wars, right? Um, we have troops, actually, Biden has uh, resent troops into Somalia, for example, troops that Trump had taken out. Uh, the U.S. C- continues to occupy one-third of Syria with troops and continues to commit the war crime of pillaging and that it continues to steal Syria's oil, uh, which is a violation of the Geneva Conventions. And the U.S. has troops in many countries throughout the world, mostly engaged in what we call you know, low-intensity conflict, but it is conflict nonetheless. But because these aren't declared wars, um, 
fight and thinks he can get away with claiming we're not at war anymore. But but the truth is is very, very different. Yeah. And there is an aspect to the legacy of the AUMF that's clearly, you know, a representation of the white supremacist nature of U.S. Uh, warmongering. And that's the impact on Muslim nations, nations uh, of people that have large Muslim populations, because there's been an inordinate amount of targeting and uh, and repression and destruction of uh, Muslim communities around the world as a result of the approval or the passage of the AUMF. What has that looked like e- even today in regard to U.S. military involvement in countries in the Middle East in particular? Well, you know, the figure I've seen is that since the war on terror began in 2001, that 4 million Muslims have been killed in that war. And then you, and you have entire countries that have been really destroyed as a result of that war. Afghanistan's one. And, of course, we leave after 20 years, and then we steal their uh, reserves, $7 billion, right? And, and now they're on the verge of famine, and we're sitting on $7 billion that's theirs and won't give it back. You have Iraq, which continues to be in a state of of extreme tension and chaos. Uh, you have Syria again, which really, as a nation, has been destroyed because of the U.S. intervention there and supporting extremist groups like the Free Syrian Army, which we were told were moderate rebels, and it turned out, in fact, they were very violent extremists. Uh, Syria will never be the country it once was, which was an amazing country. Uh, Libya has been wrecked. It's now governed by three warring uh, armed factions. You now have slaves being sold in public markets in Libya. And by the way, the the uh, extremism the U.S. supported to overthrow Gaddafi has now spread throughout northern Africa to other countries in the region, like Mali and Chad. So it's been a trail of tears, really, these wars. And again, and, 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 and that's, you know, we also have to mention that, you know, the U.S. spent about $8 trillion on those wars. You know, think about where what that money could have been used for, you know, as we see Jackson, Mississippi, without water for weeks, and Flint, Michigan, which still has lead in the water, and the U.S. could have been a paradise, right, had that money been spent on development here and elsewhere instead of on war. I mean, that's one thing that people don't talk enough about, how how our treasure has been it, – it's been squandered on wars that were worse than useless than, in fact, did the opposite of what we claim they were there to do. You know, and the only – person in Congress that that I recall uh, that is on record to have voted against the AUMF in 2001 was actually Representative Barbara Lee, uh, who consistently criticized it since and has consistently criticized it since then uh, for being exactly what you pointed out, uh, Dan, a blank check giving the government unlimited powers to wage war without debate. And do you see this continued uh, policy of uh, the government having a blank check to wage war without debate as the Biden administration is now signaling that he's willing to send U.S. troops to Taiwan to defend against an alleged invasion of the island? 
island from China. Is this just is this just another of the legacies of warmongering that the AUMF ushered in? Well, yes. I mean, to some extent, though. I mean, I, I think that it goes much deeper than that act. I mean, this goes way deeper into the American psyche, into the American imperial mindset which has governed this country really since its inception, since before its inception, right? Um, And yeah, now you have Biden. I mean, uh, it was one thing even for Bush to decide to destroy the Middle East and for Obama to continue that policy. But now you have Biden really pushing for a third world war against Russia and China. And we, we, well, we're beyond on the verge of it. That war has already begun in a lower scale way. I mean, NATO is now fighting Russia and Ukraine, you know, and the U.S. is really in charge of that war against Russia and Ukraine. I mean, it is a world war, and it doesn't look like World War One or two yet in that, it, you know, in terms of that great conflagration. But we are headed in that direction. And yes, the war could also be against China, you know, so. This is complete insanity. And yet again, there's almost no opposition to it. In fact, a lot of the population seems to be supporting it. Mm. What a terrible legacy, this horrendous piece of legislation, if you will, the AUMF has wrought, uh, but certainly something we need to learn from and never forget. We're out of time for this segment, though. I want to thank Dan Kavalik so much for joining me. We'll be back at By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C., so please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukman. And as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Today, we're talking about some monumental wins for workers in some labor struggles. And I'm happy to be joined by Amir Kafaji, an award-winning journalist based out of New York City, who you can follow on Twitter at Amir Kafaji, 91. Amir, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. It's always a pleasure. Absolutely glad to have you on to talk about some really good news for workers at the U.S. Open. Uh, This is something I actually never thought about. And I don't think many people do think about who actually does all the background work at the U.S. Open for those of us who are tennis fans. So give us some insight into the labor struggles of the workers who make the U.S. Open happen and what they were able to win. So you have the U.S. Open is this like glitzy, elitist um, event that takes place every year for two weeks in Queens, New York, in a mostly working class neighborhood. Um, they take over this park in, in Flushing Meadow Corona Park, which is mostly a park um, that a lot of immigrants utilize um, most of the year. But during those two weeks, it becomes this playground for the rich. Um the U.S. Open does this hiring spree every year. I've even, when I was a teenager, applied to work at the U.S. Open. Um, they do this hiring spree. They hire a bunch of people to do these temporary jobs. and but they, but they don't always directly do the hiring. 
at some points they hire third party contractors to do some of that hiring. So for some of the food service, the U.S. Open hires a company called Levy Restaurants. Levy Restaurants takes care of a lot of the food uh, service, a lot of the catering. Um, and Levy Restaurants, in turn, hires a staffing agency to staff their, their, their restaurants and, and find uh, enough people to work the catering that they, that they uh, need for the U.S. Open. So there's like three layers of separation between the U.S. Open and and some of these workers. So some of these workers are mostly immigrant workers. A lot of them are immigrant women workers, elderly workers, and they got jobs through these third-party contractors that in turn was hired by the U.S. Open to, to do the food service. At least three women who worked at the U.S. Open last year were not paid the entire years, and they are owed about uh, $5,000 in total. And they've been fighting for exactly one year to try to get a hold of, of, of their paychecks. But they weren't entirely sure who exactly they were working for. Were they working for the U.S. Open, or were they working for Levy Restaurants, or they were working for Event Ace, Aces, the staffing agency that was hired by Levy. Um, so they're... So, it was this complex maze of, of, of third-party contractors that was leaving the women confused. So they ended up reaching out to an organization called NICE, which is a worker center in Queens, New York, to try to help them. And I was able to cover that story. And after we initially did our story, um, a week later, the U.S. Open finally was able to get a hold of the third-party contractors and get the women their money. Um, so it's it's one of those rare stories where we, we report some bad news, but then we're able to report good news right away and um, and make change, significant change for some of these women. You know, the, the thing I think that is noteworthy about this story, aside from the fact that a lot of the workers are elderly and they are women. And the organization NICE is, is called New Immigrant Community Empowerment that rallied in the shadow of the U.S. Open tennis arena uh, to demand the back pay or the stolen wages, really, that these uh, uh, people were owed. It's the fact that these were, people were given the runaround by the U.S. Open. I mean, I, I see and, and understand very clearly that the workers didn't know who they were really working for. But I don't think that excuse can be extended to the U.S. Open because they know who they contracted to hire these people. So, I mean, why did do you think it took uh, uh, so long, a year, for the U.S. Open to respond to workers' uh, demands who were working an event that the U.S. Open uh, put on? I simply don't think they cared. Um, Levy Restaurants has a history of stolen wages. Ah. Um, Levy Restaurants is one of the largest uh, food contracting companies for sporting events that do the PGA Tour. They they do um, baseball and basketball arenas around the country. I know they've been recently accused of stealing wages at the Chicago Cubs Stadium in Chicago um, at uh, Wrig Wrigley Field. Um and they've had a history of doing of, of stolen of stealing wages at the U.S. Open before. 
there was a class action lawsuit um, a few years ago uh, that Levy Restaurants were stealing wages for several years and workers were having the same exact problem. And the U.S. Open was sued, as well as Levy Restaurants. Um, so it's not like the U.S. Open wasn't aware that Levy had this history. They were sued directly at the U.S. Open a few years ago, and Levy has had similar situations around the country. If you go online, Levy Restaurant has a lot of workers, or former workers, it seems, is who review Levy, is constantly complaining of the same thing. Event Aces also has a history of wage theft, um, which is a smaller company based in New York that that does staffing for New York-based events. But if you go on Google Reviews, and any, any of your listeners can do that today, they can see all these um, negative reviews from former workers complaining that they still work haven't gotten paid for, for, uh, for hours worked. So it seems like these companies have this history and the U.S. Open seemingly doesn't care because they're not doing the, they're not directly responsible for their, the employees. So it's kind of like a see no evil, hear no evil, speak no evil situation. And, you know, the USTA, the U.S. Tennis Association, uh, they're not the best partners uh, in Queens either. People aren't very happy with the way they have been uh, conducting themselves as a neighbor in the Queens neighborhood that uh, the U.S. Open takes place. What has been the grievances of uh, the residents of Queens in regards to just the way the USTA conducts itself? Jackie, yeah, that's a great point. I, I'm a Queens native, born and raised in Queens, grew, grew up in Queens. Um, we have never really been big fans of how the U.S. Open has treated Queens. They have this huge arena that that take that took over a portion of the public park that sits empty for most time, most days of the, uh, most times of the year. The U.S. Open is only active for about two weeks out of the year. The rest of the year, this huge tennis facility uh, is com- is completely um, kind of sitting empty, and they they've consumed uh, and they've gotten a bunch of tax breaks to exist. Right? The U.S. Open is completely ex- completely exists because of the generosity of the city of New York to make sure that the event goes smoothly. Not only do they get a bunch of tax breaks to sit there um, and um, sit there at their, uh, and build their arena in, in Flushing Meadow Corona Park in Queens, but they get all the security from the from the, the NYPD every year when they have the U.S. Open. They completely take over the park for those two year, two, two weeks out of the year where you can't even, as a resident, you can't even enjoy your park. They turn the park into a parking lot, essentially. Um, they, they also, we don't see kind of an economic impact in in the uh, in Queens, the majority of people who go to the U.S. Open. They live in Manhattan. They stay in Manhattan. They come, take the train, go to the U.S. Open, which is kind of like a self-contained city. There's restaurants. There's shopping. You don't have to go and and spend that money and spread that money around in the local community. And then after they finish it, doing whatever they do at the U.S. Open, they hop back on the train, go back into Manhattan. The working class communities don't get any impact or see very little impact. Um, and top of that, you got the environmental concern. They reroute all the airplanes from LaGuardia Airport 
during the U.S. Open so the airplane noise doesn't affect the people watching the game. And all those airplanes get redirected over working-class communities in Queens where they have to deal with excessive airplane noise. So there's, there's just a myriad of issues that we're dealing with with the U.S. Open. And the U.S. Open every year says, yes, we're trying, we're doing this, we're doing that, but it's never enough. Wow, definitely going to be looking at the U.S. Open very differently uh, the next time I watch, if I do. But a quick <laughs> pivot here uh, to other working class uh, concerns in New York. A healthcare workers union is fighting a bill that would end 24 hour shifts for home health aides. Uh, what's going on with uh, home health aides uh, fighting for not working for 24 hours in New York City now? Well, as you can see, Jackie, I'm, I'm on top of a lot of things in New York City. Um, yeah, so the so home care workers um, who are mostly women and they're mostly uh, Latino and Asian um, in New York City have been fighting to end for about almost seven to ten years have been fighting to end 24-hour workdays in New York City. Um, or 24-hour shifts in New York City. So these home care aides, they're, they're working with uh, elderly or terminally ill patients, and they often stay overnight at, at, at the patient's homes, and they're not paid for the entirety of 24 hours. They're usually paid just for 13 hours um, because they don't count sleep, even though they're sleeping away from their home, right? They're sleeping someone's home. And, and even if they're sleeping, they, they have to constantly wake up to make sure that the person, their patients are, are being taken care of. So they're trying to end that, and they want to split it into two separate shifts. It seems very reasonable. A lot of women I spoke to found, found the, um, the, the work abusive. They find the work exhausting. They've been away from their family for years because they're constantly working these 24-hour shifts. And it seemed, and I've spoke to uh, like almost a dozen women who have told me directly how those how their lives have deteriorated because of they've been forced to work 24 hour shifts. Um, and there's been hundreds of women protesting for, for years to end this practice. And there seems to be a lot of support in the city council, the New York city council, but the union that represents the home care workers, their own union is against it. And wow. they've sided with management to, to, to maintain 24-hour work shifts. And they make all kinds of excuses, say that it's going to put um, patient safety uh, in danger. It's also going to put workers at a, at a disadvantage because they won't be making overtime, even though some don't even make overtime because wage theft is rampant anyway in this industry. So they're not getting paid for the, the, the hours they're working to begin with. But the union has kind of sided with management. Um, and 1199 seems to have a long history around the country of kind of making these backroom deals um, with management at the expense of the workers. And it's and it seems like the workers have had enough and they've been protesting 1199, doing sit-ins outside 1199's headquarters to try to get an agreement with the union to, to, so the union can really speak to their needs. Um, but the union has refused to even meet with them. Instead, calling the police when they have their sit-ins outside. So it's it's been a hard-fought fought battle, and but it looks like they're getting close in New York City. The bill is getting a lot of support. Twenty-nine city council members have kind of have already um, supported the bill, acknowledged that that the bill is important. So it seems like they might win despite the union's um, 
uh, fight against it. But it's really sad when workers have to not only fight managers, but fight their own unions. Absolutely. And absolutely glad that you are on top of all of these workers' rights stories in New York City, because they definitely have implications for workers all across the country, if not all around the world. I want to thank you so much, Amir Kafaji, for joining me. We will be back on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukman. And as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about some current struggles on the island of Puerto Rico in the wake of Hurricane Fiona and the implications of U.S. colonial rule. And I am happy to be joined by Libre X Sankara, who is a poet, cultural worker, educator and organizer with the Troika Collective. Libre, thanks so much for joining me. Absolutely. Thank you all for, for having us and for having this amazing platform. We are really appreciative of you coming on and talking about the ongoing issues. Seems like Puerto Rico really cannot catch a break. So Hurricane Fiona uh, just ripped through the island. uh, And now the island nation of Puerto Rico is uh, dark. It is without power. So so what is happening now uh, on the island in the wake of Hurricane Fiona? So uh, what we have to understand is Hurricane Fiona um, is simply a side effect of a larger issue. Um, and the, the root cause of the problem is essentially settler colonialism um, and a capitalist system uh, because Hurricane Fiona is a category one. Um, it, uh, it hit our country um, five years short um, or a few days short of the five-year anniversary um, of Hurricane Maria and Irma, where a Category 5 hurricane um, destroyed the island with over 5,000 dead. Um, and so what we see is uh, the effects, again, of a larger problem, um, which is a lack of infrastructure. It's been almost six years um, of having an unelected fiscal control board that um that tells us how we have to pay our debt that we supposedly owe the u.s government back which has led to the closing of hundreds of schools um uh defunding of hospitals um and and at times of a natural disaster um we've we got stories and got word um that they've had to transfer people um from one hospital to another because generators are failing um, uh, this is also due to, uh, almost one year, um, of being forced to privatize our electric grid under a private, uh, privately owned Canadian U S based electric company called Luma. Um, and no surprise, uh, all power on the country is out. As you have said, 1.4 million households, um, over 3 million people in our country, uh, are without electricity at this moment. Um, and so 
It's it's very sad. I've been checking in on family. I've been checking in on friends. Um, and this is a slap in the face and and very traumatic. We've there's been um, you know false uh, sorries or I guess empty apologies from uh, organizations like FEMA that were supposed to help after Hurricane Maria and not until a little bit ago did they start doing any type of work. Um, and, and we can expect the same uh, because what we do know is the U.S. does not really care for us uh, in any way except uh, figuring out new ways to exploit. Um, you know, uh, there's Act 60 that has given tax breaks to um, to foreign uh, to foreign people uh, to buy land in our country, and all those people have left the island. So there's a lot of of myths. I think there's a lot of uh, hard emotions being felt by a lot of Boricuas that are feeling the real effects of colonization and and colonialism in the modern day context. Um, and so there there's a lot going on, um, and. And we're, we're just figuring out how we build. Um, and I'll talk a little bit about some things that are being done. But essentially, we're dealing with a lot of systematic issues, flooding. Um, a whole bridge was taken out. Um, families are being saved by their, by their neighbors. Um, and, and I'm only saying that because there are some Puerto Rican politicians that are claiming that the National Guard um, and... Uh, and other government entities are are helping save people um, when we have reports from on the ground and video proof that it is in fact uh, community members uh, making sure that houses that are being flooded that they're checking these houses and making sure that nobody's in there um, and getting them to safety putting their own safety at risk uh, and it just reflects communities are going to be the ones we're going to be the ones that save ourselves. We cannot depend on a colonial government um, that doesn't even recognize uh, our humanity um, to to come and save us, especially when we're doing really bad at such a time as this. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, I'm really glad to hear that, you know, you've checked on your family and your friends and that the, uh, your people are OK, even in these uh, very, very difficult uh, uh, times, and it is encouraging to hear uh, people uh, taking care of each other, people saving. It is the people who are saving themselves in the face of uh, the, as you pointed out, the colonial government uh, doing nothing. Uh, what has been the response from uh, the U.S. President Joe Biden, uh, since we are talking about uh, Puerto Rico being basically a, a, a colony of the United States? What has the U.S. Uh, uh, government under Joe Biden done in response to uh, this catastrophe? If, if you want the truth. Absolutely. Uh, what the government what the government has done is agreed to send $1.7 billion to the Ukraine. There has been um, no um, tangible um, talks or efforts being made by the U.S. government to provide any type of um, aid, um, short-term or long-term, to uh, to Boricuas and what people have to understand is also uh, we can simply look up uh, look back five years as to the government's response to 
to these natural disasters, natural disasters and man-made disasters. Again, we're dealing with the system of, uh, of capitalism and its effects um, on the island nation of Borinquen. Um, and when we asked for aid back then, it was said, uh, you know, that we are not part of the U.S. Um, and that uh, we have a debt to pay back. And which is which was a slap in the face again um right after a natural disaster where the u.s tried to downplay um and say that only 37 people died um and so there has there has been no tangible um uh push the only thing that i can imagine is that democrats will use this uh as a political platform uh use this as uh as trauma porn uh, to motivate the 6 million Boricuas that are in Turtle Island that can vote um, in these upcoming elections that, unfortunately, Democrats and to some extent Republicans as well will use this as a uh, political platform to make claims that they will do something about the situation in Puerto Rico and, oh, the people, we have to help the people of Puerto Rico um, and these are empty lies. Uh, no, no president of the United States government has done any tangible thing to systematically change the conditions in favor of, uh, of improving the conditions of Puerto Ricans. And the only real solution is that we need a working class party here in the U.S., um, as well as independence in our country, because every, every country is, uh, has a right to self-determination and independence, which is what we have been fighting for. I mean, we're, we're fighting a lot of things um, right now on top of the natural disaster um, because of something like Hurricane Maria. The only ones that are doing any type of effort are on the ground organizations um, like Taller Salud, um, Ornada Se Acabaron Las Promesas, um, the Movimiento... Um, the uh, socialist workers movement in, in Puerto Rico. Um, so you see a lot of grassroots organizations that have already lived through many hurricanes um, and are providing either mutual aid efforts or places like Casa Pueblo that because they are solar powered are able to, um, to help out people in, in their region with electricity. Yeah. And, and, you know, speaking of electricity, you did mention Luma, the electric company that operates power transmission and distribution on the island. Um, you know, they said that, you know, the, it was the bad weather that disrupted transmission lines that led to a, a blackout on the island. But really, Luma has been a problem uh, for quite some time. Why were they not able to uh, withstand uh, such a a I hate to say a, a small hurricane because no hurricane is a small hurricane, but I mean, a category uh, uh, one hurricane, as you pointed out earlier, should not have knocked out electricity to the entire island. So what, what's the issue with Luma? So the problem with Luma is it's it's moving based on the false premise that a foreign entity can come in and do something better than those that live in in said country. And so and we're talking about uh, Borinquen right now, Puerto Rico, right? And so Luma, this uh, Canadian U.S.-owned company, 
promised infrastructure um, and to, to improve the grid. Um, but essentially what they did was uh, undo the largest union um, on our island nation, um, Utier, um, and denied any help from them in the transition process uh, to improve the grid. What we do know about um, Utier, although it wasn't perfect, um, that it was Boricuas that lived in our country that were taking care of the grid. And it was not perfect, but I guarantee you that there is a lot more urgency to make sure something works when you live there. The CEO of Luma does not live in Puerto Rico. Um, and so this is essentially the root the the root cause of the problem that they have denied the the help of any Boricuas that are familiar with the system uh, claimed that they're going to improve the system uh, and then create all types of excuses uh, right before hurricane the hurricane hit all the um, all the call centers in Luma were shut down so you couldn't even call to complain about losing electricity if you had lost electricity before. What they're saying now is it's going to take them some time to get elect the electricity back up and running. But they've been they've had over a year to improve infrastructure, and in in over a year, all they have done is increased uh, people's bills seven times. Right? There has been seven at there have been seven points at which Luma has increased the cost of electricity, the monthly bill that people have to pay with the false uh, promise that they're going to improve and things have only gotten worse. In fact, we are having more blackouts under Luma than before they took over. And, and so it just attacks this idea that the privatization of any uh, of any natural resource is only to the benefit of a few people who we can assume either don't live in said country or benefit highly in that they wouldn't be affected negatively if something were to happen. And so um, this is also the role of the bourgeoisie um, of Puerto Rico and the fact that we are under a government that does not care about working class people. They're um, in November there will be a um, there will be a vote to uh, to continue the contract with Luma or to to end the contract. Um, and unfortunately, I, I recently found out there are two contracts with Luma. So there is a, a two year um, trial period contract, and then there's a 15 year contract with Luma. So um, what's happening right now is um, is the temporary contract that we have with Luma. The 15-year would obviously be longer, and it would be the same false promises of improving the grid, and that privatization is somehow a response to meeting the needs of the people, um, and that we got to charge them extra because we're providing this service to them. Um, so there's a lot of, of lies. In fact, um, groups recently have protested and um, have gone to court uh, protesting Luma and calling them out, as well as the fiscal control board um, that was used under President Obama to to implement things like Luma, um, and so this is. I mean, there's. It also led to an increase in unemployment. Fifty-two point three Boricuas live 
under poverty currently. What we can assume is after the hurricane, uh, things like poverty, things like death, things like violence are all going to be functioning off of the extreme because we're not getting any help from our colonizers and we're, and, and what we see on the Island is more and more gringos buying out land because of the laws that have been put in place. Um, And so what we have to do is stop telling the, stop selling the lie that any relationship with uh, the U S government is necessary for us to survive as Boricuas it's a parasitic relationship that we must destroy by any means necessary. Um, and independence on our terms is the only real solution for the problems that we're facing currently and that we will continue to face um, in relationship to the imperialistic U.S. government. Absolutely. I want to thank you so much, Libre X Sankara, for joining me and providing this very important update. We are out of time for this segment, but we will be back on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukman. And as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Oh, yes, my friends, we have returned. It is Monday, September 9th. And in 20 minutes, we'll be opening the phone lines to you where you can give us a call and ask us about anything you've heard on the show today, anything that is happening in the world today at all. But you know, that is not the only way you can reach out and touch us at by any means necessary, because all of our allies, accomplices and comrades, that's y'all can still reach out and touch us at by any means necessary in Washington, D.C. by calling us at 3.20 p.m. Eastern time at 202. 521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But you can also listen to our shows at sputniknews.com slash radio. Click on the plus sign and type in by any means necessary. You can also hear us on sputnik.mave. That's M-A-V-E dot digital. And you can listen live on your radio dial at 105.5 FM and 1390 AM in the Washington, D.C. area from 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern time each weekday and we're streaming live for your viewing pleasure on rumble right now at rumble.com slash c slash b-a-m necessary the chat is live and remember friends at 3 20 p.m eastern you can call us today at 202-521-1320 that's 202-521-1320 but wherever you are in this world and however you do it we want to hear from you and i am very excited to be joined this afternoon by rachel hugh organizer and co-host of one of my favorite podcasts, the Covert Action Bulletin podcast. Rachel, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks so much for having me, Jackie. I am act. I, I I'm always excited to talk to really cool movement people, and you're one of those really cool movement people. We're one of those really cool journalist movement people. <laughs> oh. 
who Thank I you. love talking to, especially as I was sitting in my um, in the dialysis chair <laughs> in the dialysis center doing my little daily dialysis. And I read this Washington Post. Oh, just they're breathless. Oh, my God. The Pentagon opens this sweeping review of clandestine psychological operations. And see, the thing is, Rachel, last month. I talked about the report that triggered this little investigation that we're supposed to be all excited about. Um, But, you know, nobody made a big deal about it. I think there were a few little ripples in uh, corporate media in the U.S., but most people just kind of pushed it aside as a bunch of nothing, nothing to see here, walk on by. But there really is a lot to see here, Rachel. And I'm wondering what your thoughts on uh, what the Pentagon has been caught doing on social media and the fact that now corporate media has decided to report on their shenanigans. Yeah, I mean, there's so many in that. I mean, to begin with, this this audit that the Pentagon has ordered of how it conducts all all this clandestine information warfare is really interesting to me. I mean, it's really interesting because they're they're only ordering this audit after the fact that major social media companies identified and then took off all these different fake accounts that were suspected of being run by the U.S. military and in violation of their platform rules. So, I mean, there's so many things just even within that. Like, one, what is the U.S. military doing that violates Twitter's platform rules? I mean, I, I'm, I have a lot of questions, a lot of curiosity around that outside of what was even reported in this article on the Washington Post, which I definitely recommend people take a look at. But I mean, among different things that that the, that was being done, one of those things was the production of, of, of deep fakes. If you've never heard of a deep fake, I, I think it's really important now more than ever, I think, to really understand what they are. Essentially, it's AI technology that's been able to do face tracking, essentially, where you can track a person's face. And it's the same thing for like any filter. If you go on Snapchat or you go on TikTok, all the filters that you can add to your face, that kind of augmented reality element of adding things onto your face, you can also add another person's face onto your face essentially is what a deep fake is it's somebody that looks like they're talking when they're really not i mean there's a tupac deep fake deep fake which makes it look like tupac is the one talking and obviously he is not the one talking and so it's a very concerning thing but the way the u.s military was attempting to use some of these deep fakes was by creating accounts where it would have people talking from different parts of the world that would then be more convincing narratives right like i think they had a couple of them on this this like this website they were they were using um what was it they were using different accounts that were part of these kind of fake connection towards these farsi uh, farsi language um, websites and it was just really interesting I, I i don't remember all the details they're not coming back to me the way i want them to but nonetheless I think it's really crazy to me that they're using this to to intervene in a way that makes it seem as though people that speak Farsi and people that are in this part of the world, you know, in Iran especially, are having positions on perspectives and ideas that they really don't have. And so there's a couple of other ways in which they're using this. They they could really do, in the article talks about an Afghan woman specifically too, in which they were trying to get maybe an Afghan woman saying something that would be persuasive if it Afghan woman is saying it and not if the U.S. government is saying it. So for me, that to me, 
that's like really one of the things that stands out as one of the most concerning elements of, of what's coming to light and what's being done is that it, all the things that we see about, you know, save Hong Kong, save Ukraine. I mean, it is not to say like there aren't terrible things happening in Ukraine, but there's a lot of things we have to take with a grain of salt. We have to look at them more critically because uh, of the fact that it's now very clear that the U.S. government is using this technology, which I had expected before. But I think it's now more so clear than ever that the U.S. government is using this technology in a way to actively change and shape the kind of ways that we feel about what's going on around the world, because it is very different to imagine that you're getting a person to person account of something happening in China or a person to person account of something happening in Cuba. You're going to feel very differently if you think it's a, a regular person telling you about what's going on versus a completely fabricated, created video made by the U.S. government for its own purposes. I mean, it really just reveals to me that the psychological experiments that the U.S. government is doing on social media is just part and parcel of what all of the social media landscape has been doing in general. I mean, social media exists to do mass psychological experiments on people to get us to buy things. And you have to imagine after you've built this kind of apparatus, which is all about putting you in a niche, figuring out where you belong on the internet to sell you things. I mean, that's really what it's all about, putting you in your own little echo chamber so that way they can sell you things for people of your specific demographic. How you can then use so much of the same technology for the U.S. foreign policy purposes. So it's there's a lot of things that concern me here, Jackie, but that's what jumps out the most to me. Yeah, I mean, I, I will readily admit that, you know, Facebook has got me cold on the African attire and African jewelry kind of, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah, they, they definitely do. And I'm I'm absolutely guilty of, you know, giving in every once in a while looking at these ads and saying, don't click on it, don't click on it. But sometimes I do. But, you know, the interesting thing that I found when this report came out actually last month and the report, uh, just to remind folks, it was uh, done by Internet researchers uh, Graphica and the Stanford University Internet Observatory. Uh, the Washington Post claims that the researchers did not attribute the sham accounts to the U.S. military, but I read that report and it actually absolutely does implicate the United States Central Command among those fake accounts uh, among among the uh, uh, entities that are behind the fake accounts. And according to uh, the researchers' uh, reports, the accounts taken down included a made-up Persian language media site that shared content reposted from U.S.-funded Voice of America, Farsi, and Radio Free Europe. Another said that it was linked to a Twitter handle that in the past had claimed, claimed to operate on behalf of CENTCOM. CENTCOM absolutely has been implicated in this report. And actually, they were exposed by the Washington Post in 2020 when Facebook disabled fictitious personas created by CENTCOM to allegedly counter disinformation spread by China, uh, you know, suggesting that the coronavirus uh, uh, responsible for COVID-19 was created at the U.S. Army lab at Fort Detrick. And, and this is where, you know, the Pentagon is saying, well, yeah, we do carry out these psychological operations using uh, social media, but we don't spread false information. Well, that's false information all by itself, isn't it, Rachel? 
Yeah, no, it absolutely is. I mean, I there's so much. Thank you for bringing that in there, Jackie. There's just so much information about this that's so important, but it's absolutely spreading false information. And who gets to define what's true? I mean, that's what's concerning to me about this is who gets to define what is true? Does the U.S. government define what's true? And then at what point does, does social media companies, independent, privately owned companies decide what's true? I mean, history, there's a whole, the idea that history itself is even defined, it's always defined by the victor, right? That's always what we hear, that history is defined by the victor. History is a very like robust field that people all around the world have different opinions and perspectives on exactly what happened on different things. I mean, there's a general truth of consensus that you can come to around most things, but at the end of the day, there's also so many different perspectives and elements to add in. That's why it's such a robust part of studies that you have at universities all around the world. I mean, it just, it, it really stresses me out and makes me think a lot when we're talking about who gets to define what's true. Will they define it in a historical sense? Will they define it in a current moment sense? And even with the idea that there's a lot of kind of fog of war reality that goes on, and we're seeing the fog of war emerge on places like Twitter, which is really kind of scary to me to think that there's all this kind of disinformation that's happening because there's no clarity on what happens. It's the nature of war. Who gets to define what's true at what moment and in which moments? And how does that change the outcome. So that's like one of my major concerns here, absolutely, is just the idea that there is some, some what, what is the body that gets to determine what's true, especially on geopolitical events? Like the U.S. cannot be trusted with that task. And, you know, you, you raise the issue of where I wanted to go next. Who do we trust with what is being said about geopolitical events? Because the CENTCOM account, a few of the CENTCOM accounts that were uh, 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 taken down were actually connected to information that was allegedly uh, uh, put there or, or posted to, quote unquote, combat Russian misinformation. And some of those posts were absolutely denying the 2014 coup in Maidan and all of the other things that we've been talking about and providing evidence of that led up to this quagmire that the U.S., the EU and NATO have created in Ukraine in their little proxy war against Russia. So, I mean, what do you see as the implications now that the Washington Post has decided, oh, OK, this is a thing. What do you think the implications are in the way people see this this current uh, uh, um, uh, geopolitical issue in Ukraine? And and, uh, and do you think it's going to have much of an impact at all, Rachel, because the, the report, the original report from Grafica and Stanford, they say that the the clandestine activity didn't have much impact. They said that the vast majority of posts and tweets that they reviewed received no more than a handful of likes and tweets. And only 19 percent of the uh, concocted accounts, the fake accounts, had more than a thousand followers. However, the the two most followed assets in the data, the two most followed fake accounts were the accounts that publicly declared a collection to a connection rather to the U.S. military, those accounts that were connected to the U.S. Central Command. So does this make a ripple in the consciousness of of the people in regard to Ukraine and, and what's really going on or or does it not? Or do, is it just a blip on the radar? 
Oh, absolutely. It's going to make a difference. And I, I think, you know, I'm thinking about Cuba, too, and, and Ukraine is absolutely a whole other bucket to talk about. But I think immediately about Cuba, because when we're talking about the, these accounts being used, I, I think sometimes there are people are easy to dismiss them because it's less than a thousand followers, less than 500 followers. It's not about kind of the, the idea of using the account to get have a large account of misinformation. It's about having many, 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 many accounts that all have the same narrative. And that to me a lot more concerning. And I think what we saw in the protests in Cuba as well that had happened, I think it was last year in 2021, these protests occurred. We had all of these different accounts, all, if you click on the accounts and you go through each individual account, you start really seeing that each account seems to have an, a weird tie to each other because they all are essentially copying and pasting the exact same language. I mean, there was a couple of different folks on Twitter who went through and actually found all these different accounts and linked them all together by just going through their pages. And so to me, it's, it's really more concerning about the totality of what can be done. And the same thing goes for Ukraine. I mean, if you have uh, a thousand accounts all claiming to be from one area, all claiming a certain uh, event happened that didn't actually happen, that's very concerning because if you have all these different people maybe with a greater level of sophistication, actually different things, actually different people, actually being on the ground, a combination of really sophisticated information warfare, you can really create a circumstance where it is very believable to the entirety of the world that is not in that area that perhaps there was a bombing that occurred that didn't occur, or perhaps there were diplomats there saying things that they didn't say. I mean, the implications really go so far because if you think about this way the application this could be used, the way this could be used, used, it could really be used to whip up war fervor in the United States over issues that didn't even happen. And the reality is, if you think about Twitter, if there's a tweet that goes out by an account and it makes the rounds, by the time it's found out to be incorrect, it's already done the damage. I mean, it doesn't really matter if something is true or not on the internet. What matters is how far it gets. And so I think that there's something to be said about that, because if you're putting things out on, in, a, in a social media landscape, which currently right now is shifting dramatically towards a different model, where it's really not about who you know or how you got here, it's just about the nature of your content, it's very concerning. I mean, what I'm referencing is the fact that all of the social media landscape is shifting dramatically in the direction of going towards what TikTok does. And TikTok's algorithm works in a very particular way for people who aren't familiar with it. Essentially, what TikTok's algorithm does is that it puts your content forward. So it doesn't matter how many friends you have. It doesn't matter how many followers you start with. What matters is how good your content is or how explosive or how kind of um, spectacular or whatever it might be, sensational and sometimes disturbing or alarming, whatever it might be. The point is that your content moves people. It will be showed to more people because it moves moves people, not because you have followers, not because you're a legitimate source, just because of the nature of what you put out. And so well, I think about putting these deep fakes uh, of Afghani women or these deep fakes uh, of, of you know, people doing all different kinds of things that, that didn't happen, saying things like even messages of help us, we're so oppressed, all the different types of things that the U.S. claims is already happening, but they don't have video evidence necessarily always of, of that happening, of them creating these kinds of deep fakes to create a situation where on algorithms like TikTok, we're going to see these kinds of videos go viral. I mean, in the tens of millions viral, not just, you know, we have an account of a few thousand followers that doesn't get a lot of traction or even as part of a, a bigger kind of bot 
uh, a bot kind of uh, attack. You know, a bots are just kind of like all different fake accounts all moving at the same time. So it, it really is to me concerning because if we move into this kind of new media landscape, which I do anticipate us moving into, especially as we see Instagram adopting the same algorithm as TikTok for their real section, I think we're really going to start seeing that the potential for false information like this to, to light on fire and spread. And even if it's fake, most people aren't going to find the retraction. They're just going to see the video that they saw and it's going to go into their consciousness and they're going to think about it in that way because that's the, the 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 government really can't even honestly move as fast as it needs to move let alone these companies to to combat misinformation it's just not the nature of the way these algorithms are built which are really prioritizing profit over everything else these this is a secondary concern for most social media algorithms and platforms absolutely well we're going to move to our first break of the hour we will be right back on by any means necessary on radio sputnik in washington dc so please stay with us by any means necessary Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukman. And as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Phone lines are now open, friends. 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. I am Jackie Lukman, and I continue to be joined by Rachel Hugh. And, you know, we were talking about how the U.S. government uh, is manufacturing consent, basically using social media now. And I, and I see this uh, being done also in the way, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, there is no one batting an eye on, uh, in regard to Joseph Biden just flat out saying he is going to use U.S. military personnel to, quote unquote, defend Taiwan if the Chinese military were to, in his words, launch an invasion of uh, Taiwan. Now, we continue to make the point that China can no more invade Taiwan than uh, the U.S. Army can invade Washington, D.C., because Taiwan is a part of China, regardless of what Joseph Biden or any neocon of either political party uh, believes. But I'm wondering how, Rachel, you are assessing Biden saying specifically that he would send American forces to Taiwan uh, to defend against this drummed up fictitious in his own mind wish uh, that China would, uh, quote unquote, invade Taiwan? I mean, well, one, I think it's crazy because it, it, in this interview on CBS's 60 Minutes, I mean, Biden was asked whether U.S. forces, U.S. men and women would defend Taiwan in the event of a Chinese invasion. I mean, who is Biden to speak for what U.S. men and women would want? Mm. I mean, it really is crazy to me, especially as somebody who has such, frankly, a, a low approval rating. Why does Joe Biden get to say and speak on the behalf of the American people? I mean, that's my immediate kind of knee-jerk reaction reaction to that is because I am somebody who lives in the United States and I absolutely do not want in any way, shape or form anyone to go to war with China. And I 
know that there are many other people in the United States that feel that way. So that's kind of my immediate reaction is Joe Biden does not represent us. He doesn't have a mandate from the people to be able to speak on behalf of the American people towards who we want to go to war with or not go to war with, because the vast majority of people in the United States are against war, period. I mean, that's just the reality. I mean, it is really crazy to me because even so, even with the whole visit to, to with Pelosi's recent visit, I mean, this was not that recent, but it's recent enough to keep talking about it. But with, with Pelosi's visit to Taiwan, I mean, people were actually really not even sure about what they felt about what should should happen. I mean, 39 percent of people felt that Pelosi should not have even visited Taiwan to begin with. Twenty seven percent of people were not sure. And about 33 percent of people did say that they, she should have visited. And so it's kind of interesting to me because about 66 percent of the country was either against the visit or wasn't moved enough to take a firm position on it. So like when we start even asking about uh, something bigger, not just Pelosi visiting Taiwan, but asking a bigger question of whether or not the United States should send people to die in a war that the, that President Biden wants to wage. I just can't imagine that those numbers are going to be radically improved. I mean, that to me says something that I think that even though people might have this view that there's a lot of anti-China sentiment in the United States, it's not to say that that isn't true. There's a lot of anti-China sentiment in the United States. But when it comes down to it, when push comes to shove about a war, people are not as gung-ho as you think, because uh, the reality is that it's incredibly dangerous. I mean, Biden even saying that, just putting that out there, that the U.S. would have boots on the ground, war in Taiwan, if China was to quote unquote invade Taiwan, which it literally can't do, as you said, China cannot invade its own territory. It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make sense to the people of China or the people of Taiwan, frankly, because this is just not how it's <laughs> it's framed. And so there's, of course, different politics in Taiwan. But nonetheless, I, I, I think my point stands that, that for Biden to say this is, a, to me, a, it really speaks to a very concerning type of escalation because people in China are not having this. I, I, I'm very active on different Chinese social media platforms, and I try to get a pulse and sense of what people are saying there. I, I have friends in other contexts that I speak to there. And when this this visit from Pelosi happened to Taiwan, I mean, pretty much we're, we're talking millions of people in China were incredibly angry, so much so that the government, even though the government has strong stance, they were also trying to walk people back because people were so incensed because there's a lot of nationalism and pride in China. And for the U.S. to intervene in this way, it signals to the people of China that this is a, a major escalation. And so for me, I think it's really important to understand that element too, that everyday people in China were not having this. They were very upset. They were pushing their government to go to war and they were pushing their government to do more. And the government's like, okay, we need to chill out. And, and people have gotten a, a cooler head since then. And things have definitely changed in terms of the political tenor. But I, I think it's, under, it's an, under, an important thing to understand that Biden saying these kinds of things are incredibly inflammatory and can have serious consequences for global politics, not just in the, in the actions and behavior of China, but in the, the public sentiment in China of Chinese people towards people in the United States. And people in China do believe, they do believe, because this is what people all around the world believe, that that the that Joe Biden and the politicians in the United States speak for us. And it's why we have to be organizing and be in the streets, because he doesn't speak for us. These politicians don't speak for us. And the people of China need to see that, that the people of the United States don't stand with the politicians frothing at the mouth for war. So, I mean, there's just many levels of implication here. 
And I think that what you just raised, Rachel, about the, the response of the, your average Chinese citizen, millions of Chinese who understood that what Pelosi did and, and, and who further understand that what Biden is doing is really declaring uh, war on China. But here in the United States, there is not enough emotion about the issue or there's not enough information about the issue for at least 66 percent of the people who were asked to have an opinion about it. And this is where I think the kind of control of media that is going into social media that the government is uh, uh, is implicated in, because I do think this is where we see the U.S. government using the U.S. military, certainly manufacturing consent for now a war with China, because, you know, as Ricky Ryan points out in the chat and shout out, as always, to the by any means necessary chat, the best chat of any uh, show on this network, I believe, and probably anywhere. Y'all are fantastic. Ricky Ryan points out that uh, she watched a panel discussion a while back and, and someone on the panel said that no one is independent of the prevailing ideas in the society. The prevailing ideas in any society is that of the ruling class. Now, if we have a, a country like China, over a billion people, where most of the people in that country understood the geopolitical implications of Nancy Pelosi visiting Taiwan in a quote unquote diplomatic uh, visit with a U.S. military escort. If they understand that Joe Biden's words are inciting war against China. But here in the United States, people are like, yeah, I don't really think that's important enough for me to care about. I, I do think this is a reflection of the fact that this society is very well propagandized by the ruling class because just like the ruling class is making money hand over fist um, with this proxy war in Ukraine, I I'm sure they're thinking, imagine how much more we could make if we go to war with China. We've got to get people on board with that, Rachel. Absolutely. I mean, and the other part of it, too, is that the question of when there's this kind of thing I see all the time in the media, the mainstream corporate media, where they're just relentlessly talking about how China's catching up or is China going to, to overtake the U.S. and all these kind of like kind of fear mongering questions, the way that they're they're wording them. And the reality is, in terms of GDP development technology, it's not a matter of if China is going to, quote unquote, overtake the U.S. It's really a matter of when. I mean, China's been on track for some time to be able to, to really outpace development in so many different ways to the United States. I mean, the GDP growth of China specifically as well is set to outpace the United States by something like 20, I think it was 2030. I, I could be wrong on the exact year, but in the next 10 years, we're going to see the kind of reversal that the U.S. ruling class is absolutely unwilling to accept. So I think it's really important to understand that greater context of what is this all happening within, and it's happening with in the context of, of the U.S. falling behind, and specifically in Taiwan, I think it's really important to note uh, about the fact that there's this microchip manufacturing that happens in Taiwan right. that the United States has been really wanting to, to fight against uh, because they don't want 
for these microchips to be able to be developed in Taiwan because they're important pieces for all the technology, let alone military technology. And the U.S. doesn't have the capability of producing them quite the same way that China does. And so I think it's really important to look at that because that technology specifically is why we're seeing the U.S. frankly stomp its foot about Taiwan in this way in this moment, because if Taiwan were to work with mainland China in the way that it intended to, for all intents and purposes, I mean, if you went back like six, seven months ago, I think there was a lot more of a neutral stance of some of these microchip developers to working with, with companies in in China, in mainland China, as well as the rest of just the, the other folks in China as well, that they had more of an open, friendly relationship in terms of that kind of development. And the only way the U.S. is going to corner this kind of technology is by creating that kind of artificial divide. Because why would anyone, uh, even a capitalist merchant in China, why would anybody in, in Taiwan why would they have any interest in working with the United States when they are literally not only part of the rest of China, but they are geographically so close? So the U.S. has really stepped in to create these artificial divides. And so much of it comes back to that fact that China's development has been increasingly outpacing the United States. And it's really only a matter of time. And I think that the U.S. saw that if it didn't step in on these microchips at this moment, that they were going to lose the opportunity and the window to do so. So I think it's an important thing to look at when we step back and really see what the bigger picture is here for the ruling class. Yeah, I absolutely actually think the opportunity has already been lost and all of this warmongering and saber rattling is making up for the fact that they (laughs) know this. But we've got a caller on the line. Tamara, tell us what's on your mind. Hi, Jackie. Hi, Rachel. Um, um, We're going to continue on Pelosi. She's she's been a bit of 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 a busybody these days. So, I was watching um, news yesterday, and I saw Pelosi talking about a peace treaty, and I almost fell out my sleep. No, no, I almost fell out of my couch because I thought she was talking about Russia. And I was like, but, but then I was like, no, she's talking about Armenia. And I'm like, oh, Lord, what is Pelosi doing now? And then I was thinking, like, how she claiming to want peace for the Armenians and she blames the um, I, I don't want to get their name wrong but Azerbaijan uh, and saying that they were behind the conflict and they're starting it but then you know when I started to learn a little bit more about the border dispute one thing that did come up come to mind was uh, what's, what's known as the 2020 Nagorno-Karabakh War which was, I guess, more land disputes. But it turns out this land dispute is goes way back, even onto um, the 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 USSR when when Azerbaijan was part of the autonomous regions of it. And when it collapsed, that's when Armenia or Armenians, um, because their land is always disputed, uh, got into more conflicts with them. But also turns out. Like if they want, if if Pelosi wants to make um, some kind of reconciliation about the Armenian genocide, why aren't they looking at Turkey? Because the same time when Turkey was building independence was when the Armenian genocide was coming to an end. So there's a two-year overlap with Turkey nationalism that's still, um, I guess, not accepting or even acknowledging the Armenian genocide. So how could they talk about peace talks without talking about? the Turkish backing of Azerbaijan, which is the U.S. fault, which caused the conflict between Armenians and people in Azerbaijan. 
So I just wanted to bring it up there since we're talking about Pelosi. And thank you for your content and having or like letting me speak. Thank you. Thank you so much, Tamara, for calling in with that really great analysis. Rachel, what are your thoughts on on this issue with Pelosi popping up in Armenia just, you know, to, to make an issue out of something that, I, of course, she, she's never going to tell the truth about. But what are your thoughts? I mean, I think it's just interesting to me the kind of I, I think it's kind of a accurate that the caller made a really great accurate observation of like you think it would be about Russia you think you think it would be about <laughs> anything that's particularly right now really pressing in so many ways and it's just not it speaks to me to just kind of the Democrats long game on so much of this and I, I wanted to bring this information in here as we're now kind of thinking about the Democrats and the Republicans and and Pelosi and kind of her orientation on different geopolitical events around the the world. I mean, it just it, it seems to me like a diversion. They they want to come across as they're as if they're anti-war, but not really. No no stake in the game. No real actual fight back against what the U.S. is doing in any way, shape, or form. But uh, you know that's a whole other. It's not here nor there. But I, I was just thinking this as we were talking and hearing this about Pelosi. You know, it, it's kind of an interesting fact that I think needs to be brought up. I mean, there was uh, this poll that was done. It was a YouGov poll with The Economist. And, you know, they, they did this poll and they asked people if they viewed China and Russia as enemies, allies, friendly or unfriendly. And what's kind of really interesting is that when it comes to Russia specifically, people that view them as the enemy or as unfriendly tended to actually be younger people of color and Democrats. But when it came to China, you ended up noticing, actually, that the people that viewed China as unfriendly or the enemy were more likely to be white, more likely to be older, and more likely to be Republicans. And so I just think it's, it's, it's an interesting point because people in the United States hold views based on, frankly, where they get their media and who they're listening to when they're, when they're listening to different politicians talk about things and who the focus of the different parties is. So Pelosi can pretend like she has interests somewhere, but at the end of the day, I mean, the Democrats are the ones who are, are hammering home the anti-Russia sentiment and the Republicans are the ones hammering home the anti-China sentiment. And with Biden, it seems like it's coming in between the two and, and merging all of it together. But my point being is that they're two sides of the same coin and the kind of perspectives that people hold are, are tied directly to their strategy of what they're trying to appear like, which is that they're they're not they're not the other guy, but they have their own lane that they've carved out. Yeah. And I, I, and I think we talked with Mark Sloboda uh, last week uh, about uh, this issue uh, in Armenia and uh, Azerbaijan. But, you know, of course, what Nancy Pelosi will not say um, is that Russia is actually trying to broker the very peace agreement, the very ceasefire that Pelosi goes and inserts herself in the middle of and tries to claim that she's the one declaring that a peace uh, a, a a peace agreement needs to happen. Well, the Russians are already negotiating that. So, yeah, Pelosi is doing what the U.S. government uh, uh, officials always do create or uh, support a conflict around the world, make it worse, and then swoop in and try to take credit for when another country is actually trying to solve the problem. But we're going to go to another break here on By Any Means Necessary in Washington, D.C. We will be back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary.
Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Phone lines are still open, friends. 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. I am Jackie Lukeman, and I continue to be joined by Rachel Hugh. And I guess, Rachel, we cannot get away with talking about the funeral of uh, Queen Elizabeth, <clears throat> excuse me, which is the official uh, funeral happened today uh, in the UK. Um, she is being <laughs> this article that we are looking at from uh, AP News says Queen Elizabeth II mourned by Britain and the world at the funeral. Yeah, not the whole world, Rachel. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there there has been over the past few weeks since her uh, passing, of course, the the legacy, the the brutal blood soaked legacy of British imperialism. Let us not forget that at one point the it was said of the British Empire that the sun would never set on it. The sun didn't set on the British Empire because the the United Kingdom, as it calls itself, uh, colonized much of the world uh, over just spanned the globe. So everywhere the sun touched, it was a colony of the UK. And, I, and I'm wondering how you are viewing you know, as an anti-imperialist, as a journalist, but as someone who lives in the United States, inside the belly of the current imperialist beast, and seeing the way people are mourning Queen Elizabeth in the United States <laughs> as if she, as if anything, as if she had any impact on our lives whatsoever, other than, you know, to be the subject of some maybe interesting Netflix shows that were historically incorrect, but, you know, fun to watch, maybe. I, I don't know. I, I'm just wondering how you're taking in this whole Queen Elizabeth funeral spectacle. And what do you what do you think about it? Oh, my God. I mean, here's my hot take, Jackie. This is my hot take. It's like, first of all, I, I, I just feel like when the queen died, all of whatever, like all the dirty laundry, all of the whatever political like internal fighting that happens in the UK, like spilled out all around the world. I was like really not ready for like I it sounds kind of dumb because I should have been ready for that. But I was not ready for like actually seeing so many people everywhere, like have real royalist sentiments. Like I'm like, I don't know, like that sounds like that's got to stay over there. Like I want all that to go back into your little corner of the world and not deal with this because this is crazy to me. Like I have people like attacking me in comments on the Internet saying wild stuff about the queen. They're like, how dare Dare you in the United States ever comment on imperialism because you guys are imperialists? And I'm like, okay, but that don't change nothing about the fact that the UK, like Britain, was the imperialist. I mean, of the whole colonial era. Like, what are you talking about? Like, two things can be true at the exact same time. So that's just my hot take. I was just really like, are you for real right now? Like, I just was so stunned by that, and I'm just stunned that people in the United States like have any desire to care at all about the royal family. I just don't, I don't understand it personally. Like, I just don't understand it at all because it's just not in my, like, way, like my frame of reference, but like, it's just been everywhere. And it just says to me, honestly, this is what I do think though, is it says to me that the, after 
colonialism, the, the monarchy was brilliant for the way that they rebranded themselves. Mm. I mean, that's entirely what they did. Mm. They went from being the most vicious people in the world. I mean, vicious, like not only the legacy of oppression of hundreds of years, thousands of years. I mean, I have no idea how long that monarchy goes back, but we're even talking about just in the UK itself, in Britain itself, what they had done to their own people, let alone what they did to the entire world. I mean, these are some of the most evil people who quite literally can be traced throughout history. And we know all of their history of all the things that they've done. We know everything behind closed doors of what they've done to people and in front of the world stage, what they've done to people. They are absolutely in every way, shape and form responsible for some of the most horrific things that have ever happened in human history. And that's it. And I don't think there's anything you can do about that. And so they're brilliant for the way they rebranded from being truly horrific people who have done serious crimes against humanity into like, oh, you know, I'm like Mary Poppins, Doctor Who. Like, I just, they got these like weird <laughs> British vibes. I just don't understand. Like people in the US are so quick to just be like, oh, British people are so quirky or they're so funny or they're so silly. And they think that about the monarchy. Oh, they're these nice, cute old lady. And look at their cute, like way of doing things and the teacups. And like, there's just like a certain way. I think that in the US people like look at the monarchy as if it's like just so cute and sweet and nice. And it's just a disturbing rebrand, if you ask me. And all of the UK has had a really disturbing rebrand, if you ask me, where we're not going to be honest about the legacy of British imperialism. And I think, too, like I, I'm thinking recently, too, I, I was reading about this. I think it was in April that this happened. Yeah, it was in April about how Jamaica, which is a country here in the Caribbean, and it's a legacy, a long legacy uh, of the history of the transatlantic slave trade. Mm -hmm. You know, we're talking about the British. And so they are, as of 2022 in April, they were in the process of removing Queen Elizabeth as the head of state of their country and transitioning into a republic, which is crazy. I mean, we're talking 2022, the head of the official head of state of Jamaica is still the queen, is Queen Elizabeth specifically the second. And so I just think this 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 fake nonsense that colonialism is in the past, that the British are 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 kind of this this the quirky, fun people that have no connection at all to the atrocities that have come before them. I mean, it's just it's 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 really disgusting to me. That's really how I feel, because the the horrors of history need to be remembered. They need to be uplifted and they need to be told. And I'm kind of concerned, too. And I'm curious what you think about this, Jackie. I saw The New York Times trying to get in there with the whole like, let's be honest about Queen Elizabeth take. Mm. And I was like, are you are you serious? <laughs> like The New York Times is trying to do this? Like, I don't know. I just couldn't I couldn't handle it. Mm -mm. No, I, I don't I don't trust The New York Times. I trust The New York Times that, probably less than I trust Associated Press and CNN. But you know what? You <laughs> brought up a good point about the way popular media, popular entertainment has warped and and just the lack of uh, knowing about the history of other places that are not called the United States has warped, <clears throat> excuse me, the understanding of people in this country about the history of colonialism uh, that that is the British Empire, that that is their history. And I think and you mentioned Doctor Who. And I got to tell you, as a science fiction fan, I <laughs> like Doctor Who. Of course, I watch Doctor Who. I'm a sci fi fan. But see, I understand that Doctor Who, the concept of Doctor Who wandering around the galaxy, messing with people who did not ask him to show up and just completely throwing their timelines in complete disarray, picking up 
friends and travelers and bringing them along, disrupting their lives. That's a very col- all all for fun, mind you, mm. all for fun. Just just because the doctor can. And 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 that's a very colonial concept. So as much mm-hmm. as I like the show because I am a sci-fi geek. I also look at it and say, man, I'd be cool if they would just leave the aliens alone. Just leave them alone. Leave, leave them alone. <laughs> of course, there would be no show. There'd be no show then. But but when you look at it from the lens of the political edu- education that you have, you see that there is the indoctrination of the colonial ideology, that there is this being, this entity that is uh, in 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 the case of Doctor Who. Doctor Who is eternal and and uh, um, he regenerates. He can't really die. He just regenerates into some other being. And his whole he's a time lord. He's a time lord, y'all. That's what he's called. So <laughs> so he has he has a very colonial. Uh, a title, imperialist title, and he just goes around the galaxy meddling in other people's businesses that 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 he nobody asked him. He just shows up. And then when they respond to this time, Lord, just showing up willy nilly, like, what are you doing? And and when the response is not welcoming, oh, then it's the crisis that the the doctor, the time Lord has to solve. That's basically the the whole plot for all of the seasons of Doctor Who. And it's been on in the UK for God knows how long. I, I mean, it's it's fun, it's entertaining, but it's also, Rachel, incredibly colonial. And I think that popular entertainment has done a lot to inure people, particularly in the United States, with the idea that the monarchy in the UK is this beautiful, uh, resplendent, sparkling, gilded, glittery, um, a, a bunch of people who might engage in a little bit of incest, but but, <laughs> but who oh are largely, God. you know, involved in political intrigue and and. In, in television shows or streaming shows like The Queen uh, or The Crown, they don't talk about the Mau Mau massacres. They don't. They don't. They don't. They don't talk about the Windrush generation. You know, they don't talk about the British being responsible for the partition of Palestine. Mm. Or the partition of Pakistan and India and being responsible for the the tensions between those groups of people. So so it's like in a way we're still on this theme of the way the U.S. as as an entity, as a, as a, even even using the the entertainment industry uses entertainment another kind of 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 social media if you will to to convey imperialist ideals to to another generation of folks who probably weren't alive and around, you know, maybe may not have been born when the British Empire was the empire in the world. But now they have this very positive, posh idea of the British Empire. So now empire isn't such a bad thing, Rachel. 
Oh, absolutely. I feel like this this rebranding has been complete. And I think the only way that the, the British monarchy is able to survive, frankly, both in the UK and just on a global stage, is because of that. It's because of that image that they get now, the the posterity, the the let's not look behind the closed doors of what they've really done. Like the just, you know, the 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 glitz and the glimmer of it all. Like they're just these benevolent people who are kind of like celebrities. They're not celebrities. They they're not they're not Kim Kardashians, okay? It's not the same thing. And like people always like to say, oh, they're the royal family, like the kid, the Kardashians are like the royal family of the U.S. Like it is kind of a funny <laughs> joke, but I'm also just like, it's not because the royal family is a real entity, a real institution. They're a real institution that ruled literally their country and ruled the world at one point. So it's just it's not the same. And I think that there's a really interesting thing happening where you start getting that that like, you know, that that like what is it reality TV feel uh, of the the royal family, too. And it's just not supposed to be that. And it's a, it's, a, it's a really brilliant. They definitely hired PR firms like they definitely hired people to walk them through how they're going to do this near the end of the colonial era, because they knew that that was the only way that the world wasn't going to turn on them because of the atrocities that they've overseen. I mean, think about the Bengal famine of 1943. Mm. Mm-hmm. I mean, like almost like somewhere between two to almost four million Bengali people died. And this was overseen by the queen herself. I mean, it's just crazy to me to think about that the royal family has been around for so long. All of these things are happening simultaneously. Like we're not even thinking about how all of that's connecting together and just how the, the queen has really been just personally herself even in in power during some of these moments, which is horrifying to think about. But either way, I mean, my my major thing about this is that I I also get very frustrated because, you know, we are called uncivilized, right? We're Mm. called uncivilized. Our our countries, our people are uncivilized because we have tribes or we have kings and queens or we have things like this that are from a different era. And we're looked down at and spit on in a way by the West because of this. And it makes me just so angry because it's like, you know, the, the, the biggest joke to me in some ways, I ain't no joke, but just disturbing fact is that you have a monarchy that still is celebrated by people around the world. And that's not uncivilized. That's barbaric. If you ask me, you want to talk about what's uncivilized, that's uncivilized. But I get very mad about that because I think it's very, they have that, that way of looking down at the rest of the world, that, that Western democracy is the best, but look at your Western democracy where you still have a Royal family that people feel beholden to. That's not democracy. What even is that? Like, it's just, it's frustrating to see that, to say the least. It is frustrating, especially since, you know, it's not as if there are not still colonies, uh, particularly to the U.S. empire, since we're talking about the new empire now. I mean, because Puerto Rico uh, should not have lost power after uh, Fiona. It wasn't, you know, but but because of neoliberalism, because of uh, the fact that the U.S. government does still hold Puerto Rico as a protectorate, as a colony, and treats it as such, you know, uh, uh, Rachel, in the, in the last few minutes we have left, we're still talking about a colony of the United States empire now not getting any assistance from its colonial masters, while the U.S. government under Joseph Biden still demands basically fealty uh, uh, from them in the way of their votes when he claims he's going to run real run for re-election again. 
I mean, Puerto Rico is absolutely a colony. It has no ability to determine the fate of itself. They get to vote for their governor, and then maybe they get no representation, and they have no ability to determine what the U.S. does. The U.S. decides what it wants to do in Puerto Rico. And so far, I mean, especially thinking about this hurricane, Hurricane Fiona, I mean, it's a Category 1 storm, and it's not to say that isn't a bad storm. I mean, Category 5 storms are like the highest storm. They're like really terrifying in terms of what they, the kind of damage that they wrought. But a Category 1 storm, if if they had recovered from Hurricane Maria, if those things were taken care of, it would not have done the kind of damage that we saw it do. It just would not have if there were things were repaired in terms of the, the blackouts that we're seeing on, on Monday, just all across like earlier today, as well as yesterday. I think there was reports at night of these blackouts just happening for a huge swaths of the population. I mean, the whole island at one point even had uh, like blackouts where the electrical systems were down. That's because they didn't repair anything after Hurricane Maria. Hurricane Maria was in 2017. Mm-hmm. The des- the design, what they're trying to do by privatizing the, the electricity, they're trying to privatize quite literally every element of society in Puerto Rico because they want to kick people off the island and they want to have a co- full, complete colonial project in the same way that they have in Hawaii. That's the goal of the United States. That's why they're not fixing anybody's homes. It's why they've done nothing to help people on the grounds because they don't want them to set their lives back up. They want them to go and either leave the island or become fully subservient to the private interest that are going to end up developing the island once everything public has been vacated. So that's my frustration with that. I'll say that because Luma Energy, which is the company that services the island, is a, it's part of a privatization scheme that the U.S. government is contracted them to be a part of. So it's just really, it's really crazy to me that we have this situation ongoing and the U.S. is not doing anything at all and then pretty much acts like Puerto Rico is its own separate country that has its own separate problems, and yet it's directly a part of the reason why we had these blackouts to begin with and directly part of the fact that they're they're not actively rebuilding in so many different ways after Maria. There's so many U.S. investors who are just circling the drain and speculating on what they can get, what they can grab when, when the land is finally up for takes, when all of the people are forced to leave the best real estate. So it's just, it's, it's really important to underscore that, that Puerto Rico is a colony. It has no freedom of will. It has no representation. It is in every way, shape and form, not a democracy. And so it's, it needs to be right now, its own country. Puerto Rico deserves to be free. It should never be a colony of the U.S. Presto John, too, in the chat said Puerto Rico is a neoliberal island colony, and that is an apt description. If anyone who listens to this show is unclear about the way the United States uh, government operates around the world and even very close to these shores in keeping working class and poor people exactly where they are in in oppressed conditions, desperate for the 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 most basic human rights through the denial of human rights and self-determination. You need to understand that the United States is the world's greatest empire. The U.S. is the empire now. It is the imperialist power. So just as there is becoming, uh, there is an ongoing reckoning of the imperial history of the United Kingdom as the queen is finally laid to rest, their queen is finally laid to rest. We need to have that reckoning of the current and ongoing colonial and imperialist machinations that are done with uh, IMF loans, coercion, 
coups, uh, attempted coups, uh, overthrowing democratically elected uh, elected governments, and then finally through U.S. military interventions that the United States government carries out around the world to maintain its empire. And our job is also to fight against this empire from inside, from inside the belly of the beast. And that's what we do every day. But we're out of time today on this show. We'll be back tomorrow with a whole new show. So until then, we will see you next time. Peace. By any means necessary.